Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our passage this morning is a very familiar story. It comes from Luke 15. It is about a father with two sons. Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in desolate living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up, I'll go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. And so he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked, what was going on? He replied, your brother has come, and your father killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, For all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. 
Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This past Wednesday, I had a conversation with Dr. Kipper Nottingham and asked him question after question about staying healthy during a pandemic. And Kipper gave straightforward medical answers about the virus and its spread, handling food, interacting with loved ones, and about what we need to think about as we start to open up as a community and when we might have people back in this sanctuary and in the other spaces of this church. If you want to find that conversation, you can find it on the church's YouTube channel. It's worth watching. Before the event began, Kipper asked me if it was awkward preaching to an empty sanctuary. I told him, no, it wasn't awkward. I mean, it would feel awkward if I was pretending like it was different, if I were looking at all the supposed people in the pews and pretending like it were full, but I don't do that. Instead, I preach to a camera. And I know that on the other side of that lens is Millie. David, Nancy, Christy, Megan, Lori, Bill. Of course, I won't ever know everyone who is watching, and yet I feel connected to somehow everyone who is on the other side of that lens because we're related. We're related in our shared humanity, in our shared need, in our shared desire to hear something helpful, hopeful, true. Well, check that. I'm not related in my humanity to everyone who is on the other side of the lens. I've seen enough Facebook post pictures to know that there are a number of dogs watching the broadcast as well. And I just want all our canine visitors to know that they are welcome. So it's not really awkward. But I will say that it's different. There is this sense of scanning the horizon that is going on. There's this distance that has to be negotiated because we are denied face-to-face worship. And so you preach to the camera with added energy, seeking to make that connection with those who are out there. It's like sitting down to write a letter to a loved one. You put in some extra energy because you can't see the person to get your thoughts right, to communicate your emotions. Or... It's like compensating during this pandemic and not being able to kiss and hug children or grandchildren. And so you give this extra energy to connect them through a door or a window or a telephone call or a computer screen. With that extra effort, there comes this different kind of intimacy. But you know what? Even when people are in the same room, even when they can see each other, see each other eye to eye and even touch, there is still this scanning that goes on, at least between people who are trying to know each other, trying to love each other. Just to paraphrase something that Soren Kierkegaard said, he said, truly loving another is not solving the mystery of another, but it is a continuous searching, a continuous exploring of the other. I want you to imagine 
A picture of a mother holding her just-born baby. With eyes blinking away tears, she looks at a child that she somehow already loves. And yet already she looks into her child's newly opened eyes and scans the horizon, searching for who it is that she now holds. And already she is asking questions that she's going to be asking the rest of her life. Who are you? What will you become? Are you well? Are you safe? Are you listening to me? What's going on in that head of yours? What's going on in that heart of yours? And it doesn't stop. The boy will grow up under that searching gaze. The first years of his life, he's going to be liberated by it, nourished by his mother's attention, which helps him stay safe and learn and play and grow. And with the rituals of the morning and the rituals of the evening, with the cadences of home which make life predictable enough to be stable and safe, he feels large in his world, even though he is physically small. I can tell you in our house, little Emery stands all of what? I don't know, two feet tall. I should have measured her before this sermon. That little thing, though, feels very large in our house under all the adult's eyes. But then for this boy, there come years when he begins to feel constrained and trapped by that gaze, where he thinks that he can live even larger. Well, he loves his mother, but he pulls against the expectations and rules and her many suggestions and observations, some of which feel like judgments. There are things that he wants to do and become outside that mother's gaze. He wants to be freed from its judgment and control. I think that home is represented by that mother's loving gaze. Home is where he is seen. It's where he is formed. But home is where he wants to lead because he feels constrained. You see, for this boy, he thinks that there is a different home out there in which he can find a true, a better, a different identity. Now, if the boy were wiser, he would know that he needs to remain within a tension between finding identity in the loving gaze of another, but also finding his identity apart from her. But this boy somehow gets it in his head that freedom means being disconnected. Freedom means being free of connections. And so he leaves. He goes where he cannot be seen. I bet you have guessed by now that I shifted from celebrating a mother's love to talking about our parable. Jesus could today, probably more likely, speak of a mother's love of her two sons, but living as he did in a patriarchal age, He spoke of a father. A father has two sons. The older son, as is often the case in Jesus' day, it was the norm. He remains home. He'll remain home the rest of his life. He continues to live under his father's gaze. But the younger son severs his connections with home. Wanting to be out of his father's sight, wanting the expectations and the guidance and the judgments and the chores and the the control to just go away. And that is as much about a brother who always seems to know better than him as it is about a father who always seems to want more from him and more for him. 
he leaves. Because home, he feels, is the killer of his dreams. Not only for the money, but also to sever any need to have to deal with his family in the future, the boy asks for his inheritance early. He leaves to find the place of his dreams where he can be who he wants and do what he wants to live out the life that he always knew he needed to live. Could we say that he is seeking utopia? You know what utopia is. It is the perfect world of one's dreams. Now, of course, that dream can change with each person. It can be, one, the freedom of artistic expression. For another, the freedom of a lover. For another, the freedom to do the work or play the games or explore the places. For another, it's where the empty places are filled by stuff, by chemicals. I mean, I dream of utopia. I think we all do. I speak of it all the time when I don't mean to. Even at my idealistic best, when I dream of evil being overthrown and the world being fixed and completely fair, where everyone is treated as they need to be treated, where these awful things never happen again. But it helps to remember what the word utopia means. Utopia means no place. And there's the problem. A perfect place is no place real. And the boy finds that out. After wasting his resource, a famine comes. Famines are like this pandemic. Famines expose who lives on the edge. It exposes also those who live beyond their means. The younger son survives only by living where he can and eating what he can find. He wishes he could have the pods that they feed to the pigs. He discovers that the only difference between him and Syrian war refugees is that he chased this utopia of no place, whereas they are forced from their homes into squalor. And the son finds himself yearning to return home. He wants to go back where he is seen again. He is homesick now for the rituals, routines, boundaries, and definitions of a place. He wants a reconnected and grounded life. Let's pause here. Let your judgment of the son's mistakes slip away for a bit. Let's open our imagination to how many in modern times can actually relate to his experience of being lost in no place. Walter Brueggemann points out in his latest book that just a few centuries ago, just a few centuries ago, the whole universe seemed like a house. I mean, it rested on a foundation. It had the sky as a ceiling, the walls with the limits beyond which no one would ever go. And yet we went there across the sea, around the world, to the moon. And with our telescopes and our satellites and other instruments that scan the skies to endless expanse. And now the universe is amazing, but it no longer feels like a house. It no longer feels like a home. Space being endless thus feels placeless. And in this placelessness, we can wonder who we are and to whom we belong. 
Is there a God out there searching the horizon for us? Or are we unseen, lost in space? And so those who really feel this long to find a home in this vast universe where we can feel large again, even though we are so physically small. Now, maybe that's a bit philosophical, though I do think it's the context for a lot of modern anxiety. I think that we all, in one way or another, feel it, experience it. But let's think social. We live in a social media age, an age of endless information. With so much to know, though, what is worth knowing? With so much to see, what is worth seeing? With so much to listen to, what is worth listening to? What is worth reading? With so many perspectives, what's worth believing? When the truth that we want to believe is just one channel or web link away, what chance does anyone else's truth have to reach us? And we can lose that sense of a community as a home. A home where siblings do not always agree and they have to find a way to get along. After all, they eat at the same table. They have to do the same chores. And all of a sudden, though, in this social information age, we we start yearning for a home of credible truth and trustworthy authorities, a place of compromise and grace that allows for tension that doesn't easily lead to ruptures. Just as people can flee to the far country where they can choose their own truth, It's also true that people can flee to the far country where they can choose their own faith. There, frankly, is no religion, denomination, congregation, or faith community that isn't like the family of our parable in that they all have issues and they can feel confining with their history and rituals and structure and rules and boundaries and chores. No church is utopia. Even the best of faith communities are flawed and they are imperfect, sometimes frustrating, sometimes confining. And I deeply sympathize with those who find appealing this dream of being spiritual but not religious. Beneath this desire to be spiritual is this desire to sever connections with corruption, sever connections with corrupted religions and denominations and congregations and those people who seek control through God's threats. The worst of churches can harm people, leading to what psychiatrists call moral trauma. But I suspect that what often happens with not being religious, not being connected to anything that feels institutional with its demanding expectations and its defining boundaries, but being spiritual, being open to God's voice only and not the voices of other people, past or present, can end up with people finding that being open to anything about God is to find God nowhere. And then they wonder if they can find the spiritual home. Some who have cut their connections with Christian faith communities find themselves longing for the home place of a family history, a place of familiar rituals and cadences. They would like to find rest in a place where God knows your name, where you return to a family table where the Lord's Supper is shared, 
It's a place where old family stories, what Jesus said and did are retold and where we remind each other what we're called to be and expected to do. It's a place where there is, it's clear that there are moral commands that have to restrict us, that we have to live by, that we need to tell the truth, that we need to treat each other with respect, to forgive as we've been forgiven, to love as we have been loved, to pay attention to the vulnerable, to accept help with gratitude, to share when we are able, and pray not to a God of one's own choosing, but to a God who has chosen you and others to pray with you and serve with you. It's a place where siblings in Christ who are different and often disagree can practice getting along and working it out and thus be a light to a divided world. No perfect church is out there, and there are faith communities that do more harm than good. But I have described experience of churchness, experience of church that is out there, I promise you, because I've had those experiences, and it has constrained me, and it has limited me, and it has formed me, and it has liberated me, giving me this baptized identity and the sense of belonging and place and family that imperfect but very real community of faith is out there to be found. Our story ends with two surprises. The first surprise is that the son who has broken connections with home suddenly wants to go home and be connected again. The second surprise, you heard it, is that the son is welcomed home. The son may have escaped his father's sight, but the father kept his eyes open. Never stopped looking for him. The mother at the beginning of this sermon never stopped searching on the horizon for the child. Now, I have no doubt that a few months after returning that boy, he's going to get frustrated with the kind of things that frustrate us. There are jobs to do, some of which he doesn't want to do. There's this brother who still gets on his nerves, a father who still has expectations, limits on what he can do and what he can say because his family's watching, others are watching. But this boy now is in a place where people are not only accountable to each other, but he now knows that they watch out for each other. And even though every day is not the utopian experience of unfettered liberty and bliss, he's home. He's home because he's going to hang on to this memory. Coming at a great distance and seeing his father on the horizon looking for him, and then seeing him, and then running to him, and then kissing him, and then throwing a party where the community that knows him are the guests. And the son will once again, in the freedom of experienced grace, choose to remain in sight of those who remind him who he is and remind him that he is loved. He feels so large again. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.